Well, friends, would you turn, please, in your copy of Scripture uh, to the book of Genesis. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 17 and 18 today through uh, verse 15 of chapter 18. And uh, how many kids do we have in the room today? We've got a few. If you're a kid, raise your hand high, would you? Yeah, right on. Okay, I see a couple kids right there, and then there's another one in the middle. That's good. I love it. No, yeah, that's awesome. How many other kids? Anybody? All right, several Scots a kid, right? We got, we got one back there. That's good. All right, so uh, in the first service, we had kind of a kids' emphasis service in a different way, and we don't have as many kids here today because we don't have kids programming second hour, which is fine, uh, but I want to show you uh, a little bit of an exercise that we did with the kids' first hour, and so so I had the kids. I'm going to bring this forward a little bit. As, yeah, I think that's okay. Um, I'm going to break it as I do. No problem, no problem. Well, a little problem, but um, in the first hour, we had a bunch of kids up here, and I asked them three questions, okay? I asked them three questions, and I wanted to know, was there anything that you've ever done that was really hard, okay? Can any of you relate to, to something that you've had to do that was really hard, but you were able to do it? You know, I kind of think uh, doing hard things is akin to sort of the American spirit. I I told you I went backpacking in the Grand Canyon uh, last year. That was one of the hardest things I've done. I wasn't quite sure I would make it out. Praise God, here I am. I live to tell about it, all right? Uh, That was hard. Uh, The kids came up with some really interesting things, things that were hard for them to do. One of the first things they said, I love this, they said it's hard to forgive people. (laughs) Anybody? right? Forgiveness is hard. Another thing they said, uh, it's hard to play drums. Uh, Amen, right? Uh, That's hard. I have tried to play and I can't very well. Uh, It's hard. Uh, Climbing mountains is hard. Yeah, yeah. And um, and not to sin. (laughs) How's that for hard? It is hard not to sin. I agree with that. Um, Of course, soccer is hard, right? Football is not hard, but soccer is hard, right? Soccer is really difficult. And then doing cartwheels is hard as well. Uh, We had some great things that the kids came up with that are hard. And the person that does cartwheels, it was hard for her to learn, but she knows how to do them. And so that's a big deal. I can't do cartwheels, all right? Um, Go figure. And and so then I asked the question, so if, if things are hard, but you've been able to do them, what's a thing that you've tried that's really hard that you haven't been able to do? Okay, and I use the example for me, I think I may have shared this before in church. When I was a kid, I, I, I loved to be in the water, go to the lake with my family, and my uncle Dave, he had this speedboat that, that we used to love to be in, and we loved to catch fish and all that, but it also pulled skiers behind it, okay? And my cousins and my, my brother and everybody else, I felt like even my mom could ski, but I couldn't. And I said hit it behind that boat at least 200 times, and never once as a kid did I get up. I had this one shining moment as an adult where I got up for about 15 seconds and then fell flat on my face, right? Uh, but, but it was really hard. I couldn't do it. I just couldn't overcome it. The kids came up with some stuff. They said ice skating. This kid apparently has not ice skated, has tried and failed, and you know that's part of the deal. Fishing. Some have fished and never caught a fish. That's really sad. Okay, that's, that gets close to my heart, all right? Um, uh, gymnastics, uh, gymnastics skills. There was one of the kids that said, I've been trying and trying, and I just can't flip three times in the air and land on my feet, or whatever it was. I don't know what it was, but um, gymnastics skills. And then making friends. And then that, that can be hard, can't it? Sometimes it's difficult to make, to make friends. I thought the kids had some insightful responses about what things are, are hard, don't you? Yeah. Now, um, the other thing that we ask then is when something is hard, when you can't do something that you want to do, but you just can't, who do you go to for help? <laughs> and, and, you know, our kids are pretty special. And so one of the first answers was, what do you think it would be? 
Jesus is always the right answer in church, friends. I've taught you this. I, I've tried. I failed, okay? Jesus. They, 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 said, they, they get it in kids' ministry. Maybe not here, all right? Uh, so we'll keep working at that. No. Uh, Jesus. Of course, Jesus. But they also said adults and, and other people. And, and so they, they recognize that when things are hard, there are resources. And in fact, there's one primary resource to whom we can go. And with that in mind, I led the kids through a little bit of a scripture memory exercise. And, and I think this group is actually capable of that. Though you got the last answer wrong, um, we're going to be fine. Uh, all right, I'm going I'm to give you another chance, and we're going to memorize some scripture together. And this is what I did with the kids, okay? In Genesis 18:14a, it says this, is anything too hard for the Lord, okay? There's a rhetorical question here. Say Genesis. Good, 18, 14a. All right, say Genesis 18:14a. Yeah, it's a little harder, right, when you string it all together, but it's got kind of a lilt to it, right? Uh, is anything too hard for the Lord? All right, now we're going to practice this, and I'm going to do it in Mark style, okay? Our kids director, Mark, and I'm going to take away about a letter or a phrase at a time. So take away that first one. Is what too hard for the Lord? Good. Say the whole phrase then. Good. Well done. Well done. Now a couple more go away. Good. Here we go. Good job. You still got to take away a couple more. Here we go. Hey, this is, this is music. This is good. All right. Now take them all away. Ready? Okay. Good job. You memorized some scripture this morning. How's that? What's the reference? Bingo. Hey, this is a sharp group. You've totally redeemed yourself from that fail a minute ago. I'm, I'm really proud of you, all right? So, so is anything too hard for the Lord? And, and I, I told the kids, I'm going to introduce you, and, and actually we've been talking about this in big church uh, for the last several weeks, to a couple that didn't have any kids, and they were wondering, is anything too hard for the Lord? They're, they're getting older in their years, and they're wondering, is God going to come through in the way that he promised? And they're not sure. And so we're going to ask this question again at the end of the message. And maybe if you're one of the kids out there and you memorize that right along with us, I want you to listen for that as it comes by later in the message. And we're going to try to answer that question. We're going to answer that question. Now, the, the best place that I know to go to answer questions like what we just asked is to go to the Scripture, is to go to the Word of God. And so that's what we do here at Cornerstone. That's what we're going to do this morning. So I want to just remind you just a little bit more about Abram and Sarai before we start reading here in Genesis 17. See, Abram and Sarai are about 99 years old. Actually, Abram is 99 years old at this time, and his wife, Sarai, has been barren ever since he married her. She's been barren her whole life. She can't have any children. And now she's 89 years old, and it's been 24 years since God made a promise to Abram and indirectly to Sarai that through them, he would produce a seed that would be a blessing to the nations, that God would produce offspring through Abram and through his family such that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And it's been 13 years since God uh, spoke last to, a to, to Abram. And he spoke to him in the context of this. Abram and his wife were, were struggling with God's promise. They were waiting a long time. And they took matters into their own hands. And Sarai gave her servant, her slave, Hagar, to her husband as a surrogate mother. And they conceived and they gave birth to this, this young boy named Ishmael. And it was a mess. We talked about that last week. I encourage you to go back and listen if you can. And so they're struggling. 
And, and here, 13 years later, Ishmael's got a little bit of hair on his lip. He's 13 by now. And, and they're wondering, is God ever going to come through on his promise? Are we ever going to realize what God told us he would do? Because from a human perspective, things looked very bleak. <laughs> it's too hard. It's too hard. They're in the second category here. Hard, but no, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. But then just at the right moment, just when Abram and Sarai might have been most cynical, most disappointed, most frustrated, watch what happens. See, God shows up once again. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 17 in the book of Genesis. It says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Church, how many years has it been since God spoke last to Abram? 13, 13, okay, 13 years. Don't mess that one up. 13 years. And 13 years ago, God said to Abram, look, it's gonna be your very own son. I'm gonna bless the nations through your very own son. You're gonna have a child, Abram. And yet, when Abram and Sarai took matters into their own hands, it turned out in disaster with Hagar and Ishmael. Nonetheless, it's been 13 years. It's been a long time. And by now, Abram and Sarai are way too old to have children. The next chapter says that Sarai, for that for Sarai, the way of women had ceased. She's in menopause, and her childbearing years are over. See, there's no chance from a human perspective for the promise to be fulfilled. And yet, that's precisely when God shows up. It's precisely when God shows up. And notice the first thing that God says to Abram is to introduce himself. And what's unique here is that he introduces himself in a way that he's not introduced himself before. It's in a brand new way. And God says, I am the Lord God Almighty. I am God Almighty. The Hebrew is El Shaddai. El Shaddai. Uh, somebody wrote a song called El Shaddai many years ago. And it means I'm the God of power, I'm the God of might, I'm the God who's capable of doing anything I set my mind to. This scholar named Youngblood says it describes the God who makes things happen. I like that. He's the God who makes things happen by means of his majestic power and might. And friends, isn't it amazing that in the middle of this cynicism and this doubt, when, when it's just too hard, God shows up and the first thing that he says is, hey, I'm God Almighty. I'm the God who gets things done. I'm the God who makes things happen. And, and Abram, I know you've been waiting a long time, and I know it's easy to be cynical 24 years since my first promise to you, but you gotta know who you're dealing with here, Abram. And see, what seems impossible to you is nothing for me. I'm El Shaddai. I'm God Almighty. Now, interestingly, after the new introduction, God also gives Abram a new condition by which he's to participate in the blessing. He gives Abram a new condition by which he's to participate in the blessing. See, God didn't just mean to do something for Abraham such that he could do something through Abraham. He also meant to do something in Abraham. Now, Abram. And so he says, verse 1b, he says, I'm God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between you and me and may multiply you greatly. Church, the, the condition that God puts in front of Abram is that he joins his ancestors, Enoch and Noah, as one whose walk with God is blameless. 
Keep in mind, not as one who never sins, because we know that Abram is as capable of sin as we are, but as one whose life matches the trajectory that God has for him, who's willing to walk in the path that God has set out for him. Uh, Waltke describes it as that which signifies wholeness of relationship and integrity. And friends, with as, as messy as the journey's been for Abram to this point, and, and with as long as God has required Abram to wait for the fulfillment of his promise, I'm convinced that God has been patiently teaching Abram how to put his faith into practice. See, it takes time to walk with God and be blameless. It takes time. And think about it. I mean, if Abram just shows up in Canaan and everything is easy, if the Canaanites say, well, you look sharp, why don't we just give you our land and give you our, 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 our resources and you just take over? If Abram shows up and there's unicorns running around the hills and everything's rainbows and easy, right? What would that do to his character? We, we've seen that, haven't we? In the, in the biblical narrative, we saw Solomon. Solomon inherited a great kingdom from his father David. And he started out well, he asked for wisdom, and he, he acted on, on behalf of the Lord, and yet over time, his heart drifted from the Lord, and he didn't finish well at all. God says, I'm not having that for you, Abram. I'm going to do a work in you as I prepare the world to be blessed through you. You're going to be the father of many nations, and I got some stuff I want to see happen in here. <laughs> And so he puts this condition out there. Abram, I want to bless you, but I also want to form you. And so here's what I need from you. I want you to walk with me and be blameless. And it begs the question this morning, are you waiting on God to fulfill his promise? And if you are, how's your walk? How's my walk? Can it be said of us that, that our walk is blameless? that our walk matches what we profess? Friends, I think that's always a good question to ask. It's an important question. How often do we seek God's blessing without our obedience? You know, we treat God sometimes as if he owes us something. <laughs> that we set the terms and God ought to be happy that we decided that he gets to be our God, that we chose him out of everybody else. But friends, that's, that's messed up. That's the reverse. God is the one who sets the terms. God is the one who chose us. And it's true, God delights in blessing us, but he doesn't owe us anything. He alone sets the terms for his blessing. Now, at this point, God once again reiterates the covenant that he's made with Abram, and only he amplifies it. He, he understands it's been 24 years he understands that, that cynicism has crept in, but he reminds Abram, look, I got this. I, I, I got this. And here's what happens. Look at verse 3. It says, then Abram fell on his face. <laughs> Church, when the Almighty God shows up the way he did to Abram, you better believe you hit the floor. When God reveals himself, the text says that he appeared to Abram. When God shows up, the right response is to hit the floor, just like Abram did. There's, there's no standing in the presence of the Almighty God. And Abram understands that. And so God said to him, now verse 4, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. 
For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Friends, it's time. Apparently God has seen enough in Abram to say, okay, now you're ready. And to demonstrate, I'm going to give you a new name. You're no longer Abram, exalted father. That's what Abram means. Now you're Abraham. Now you're the father of many nations. No longer are you simply a noble person. Now you're a purposed person. You're the father of many nations. And I find it fascinating, friends. Abram is almost 100 years old when God gives him a new name. (laughs) Most of us would think, 100 years old, just let the guy alone, right? No. God isn't finished with Abraham. He says, I'm going to give you a new name. I'm going to renew your purpose. And and what that tells me, friends, is that God's work, though we might expect it to be immediate, though we might expect him to work in our timeline, in our way, according to what we expect, God's work is often a slow work. It's a simmering work. It's not McDonald's. It's a brisket, slow smoked over a long time. And the longer it goes, often the better it gets. Friends, God is patient. He was with Abraham. And he'll be with us as well. The question is this. Will we be with him? Will we be with God? Will we be patient for the character-forming work of God to take place in us? Abram was almost 100 years old before things started to click. And we still got more to do with him. All right? Are we willing to wait on God's promise? Now notice what God says to him. He says, I'm going to make you exceedingly fruitful in this. He says, and kings shall come from you. Kings shall come from you. Of course, we understand the kings of Israel. We understand that David comes in the line of Abraham. But Matthew chapter 1 in this great genealogy proves that God starts with Abraham. And generation after generation lead toward the king king of, of, of Israel, King David. And from him comes eventually this one born in Bethlehem of the tribe of Judah who would rise up as the Messiah, our Savior, none other than Jesus Christ. Kings, yes, shall come from you indeed, Abraham. And because of it, God says, I'm going to establish my covenant with you forever. It's going to be a lasting covenant. And all who turn to me in faith are going to participate in that covenant. I will be their God and and they will be my people. Friends, that covenant extends now even to us. I'm convinced that that there's a special place for for the Jewish people, the, the physical descendants of Abraham in terms of land. But I'm equally as convinced that all who are in Christ are participants as children of Abraham, as those who are a part of the blessing that extends to us as well. Now, a few moments ago, we, we heard the condition that God gave Abraham for participating in the blessing. Remember what it was? Walk before me and be blameless, right? 
And now he, he adds to that in, in, in a more specific way. He adds a specific command to this condition. And so let's read what it is. It might be a little surprising here. So let me show you. Verse 9. It says, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Here's what it is. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Abraham, you want to, you want to be a part of the covenant? Here's what you have to do. No exceptions. No exceptions. And, and it's here that God establishes this sign of his covenant with his people. If you walk with me and you're blameless according to my word, you will have your blessing. And as every male amongst you experiences pain in his most precious and vulnerable place, I'm going to remind you that I am the God who superintends my promise. I'm sovereign over my promise. And so I'm going to ask you to trust me even with your seed in this most tactile of ways. Now, as we consider this, we've got to understand what circumcision is and what it isn't. And don't worry, it's not an anatomy lesson, all right? Circumcision is a sign of identification with Yahweh. It's a sign of identification with Yahweh, the covenant God of, of Abraham. And in that way, it functions for the people of God prior to Christ in similar fashion to what we shared earlier in the Lord's Supper. We do this in remembrance of who? Jesus is still the right answer, and I can't believe you messed that one up too. We're going to work on this, people. All right. We do this in, the, in remembrance of Jesus. We eat the bread and we drink the juice in part as a sign of our trust in the new covenant. Not as a means to secure the new covenant, but as a sign of our trust, as a symbol. And in the same way, we practice baptism. Ba baptism isn't what secures the covenant. We're not baptized and then we're saved. We're baptized as a sign of our commitment, as an outward demonstration of that which is already true in our hearts. We're baptized as a sign of our faith in Jesus. And so too was Old Testament circumcision. See, it never replaced the need for faith. Remember, Abraham was credited as righteous because of what? Amen, you got that one. See, why do you get that one and not Jesus? All right? <laughs> Friends, as a sign of his faith, Abraham was credited as righteousness. That does not change when we receive the sign of circumcision here in Genesis chapter 17. Those who were circumcised were marked with a vivid reminder of their obligation to God for everything including that which was most precious to them. And friends, forever amongst the Jewish people, the seed that's passed on from one generation to another is precious. It starts with Abraham and extends all the way through the culture. God says, I want you to trust me even with that. 
And of course, there are plenty of circumcised people that never acted accordingly. They never acted according to the sign they received. They never had faith. Thus, they were, they were cast out from the people of God. That happened over and over throughout Old Testament history. Circumcision doesn't guarantee faith. Neither does receiving the Lord's Supper. Neither does baptism. Circumcision simply reminded the Jewish people of their obligation to have faith. They couldn't miss it. It reminded them of their need for God. And so God says to Abraham through the the sign of circumcision, look, if you want the blessing, you're going to have to trust me even in this significant way. You're going to have to demonstrate to me what you're willing to trust me with. You're going to have to give up in order to receive what I have for you. And Abraham, I know it sounds crazy. And I know it's not something you like. I'm just assuming that, right? The text doesn't actually say it. But this is what I want you to do. Now, before Abraham can respond, I want you to notice what God says next. Verse 15. It says, And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. And then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. And when he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. See, all along, Abraham's been facing a conundrum. He's been facing a conundrum. His wife, Sarai, has been barren their whole lives. It's been a source of hardship, a source of shame, a source of disappointment. And now she's simply too old. She just is. There's no chance for a child. It's too hard. It's in the second category. I am not water skiing, all right? (laughs) And she knows it. And he knows it. And for years, they've been trying to figure out how to help God fulfill his promise. God, thank you for that. But this isn't happening, so you're going to need our help. Only how does that turn out? Over and over, it's a mess. And now the time has passed, and, and her giving birth to a child is categorically impossible. And yet God says, Abraham, remember who I am? I'm El Shaddai. And so let me be clear, Sarai, who will now be referred to as Sarah, she is going to give birth to your child. And through that child, your blessing will come. Now, we're not exactly sure what the name change means. Uh, Both Sarai and Sarah actually mean the same thing. They mean princess. But but now, where before Sarai was the princess to an exalted father, to a dignitary... (laughs) Now she's the princess to the father of many nations. 
God is repurposing and reforming her understanding of her calling here in this point. Whereas before, she was the princess to an exalted father. Now she's the princess to the father of many nations. And she too, like Abram, who becomes Abraham, she too becomes progenitor of kings. Praise God. But for Abraham, it's it's almost too much. And, And when he hears God speak, he does what he does. He hits the floor, right? But then he's laying there on the floor and he's smelling the dust and he starts to wrestle with what God has just said. And deep within his gut, he starts to chuckle a little bit. <laughs> and maybe it's a nervous response. Maybe, maybe there's a hint of sarcasm in there. But a chuckle starts to flow out of him and pretty soon it becomes a great laugh. I mean, he starts laughing and wailing. Sarah, really? I mean, I, mean, I love that girl, but she can barely walk. <laughs> And here we are, we're putting together wills and advanced directives. You want us to put together a nursery? Are you kidding, God? And then in mid-laugh, he pauses. And it's like he remembers his overly complicated life, and he flashes, and he realizes, I have a son, and his name is Ishmael. God, what about Ishmael? I know this thing didn't go very well at the beginning, but, but he's 13 years old. He's got some hair on his lip now, and he's, he's doing some stuff that I think you'd, you'd be appreciative of. He's, he's demonstrating some convictions and some strength, and, and I know he wanders around in the wilderness once in a while, but, but, but God, come on, I think you can use him. I think he could be the, the guy that, that, that participates in the blessing. But God says, no. No, Abraham. It was not my design that you marry someone not your wife. That was never my plan. You went out of bounds with Hagar. We're going to do this the right way. We're going to do it my way. And Sarah will give birth to a son, and that son will be the participant in the blessing, in the covenant. And Abraham, I I recognize your father's heart here. I know that Ishmael is your son, so, so don't worry. I'm going to take care of him. But Isaac, whose name means laughter, He's going to be your heir. And every time you pronounce his name, you're going to remember what you did when I said that Sarah was going to have a child. Every time you pronounce his name, you're going to remember yourself there on the floor looking a little bit silly because you didn't believe that I could come through, that I really am El Shaddai, the God who gets things done. And your inability will only serve to highlight my ability. See, though, though your laughter today is cynical, one day, one day you're going to laugh with joy as you hear the cries of your son in the nursery of that old woman, Sarah, who is the mother of your child, a child whom I will bless beyond comprehension. Remember, I'm God Almighty. Now, look how Abraham responds. Verse 23. It says, then Abraham took Ishmael and his son and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Total compliance, church. Total compliance. And Abraham, once again, demonstrates he's a man of faith. Is he messy? You bet. 
Does he have faith? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. The text says twice that very day. That, that phrase is intentional. There was no waiting. There was no backup plan. There was no need to run through his options. Only full and immediate obedience. And as Abraham flays open his skin, he also opens his heart to whatever the Lord would have for him. There's language all over the place in the Old Testament that talks about a circumcised heart. And that's what God desires, friends. A willingness to say, okay, God, I'm going to trust you with that which is most precious to me. Have your way. Have your way. Now, in many ways, what happens next in chapter 18 parallels what we've just talked about, parallels what we've, what's just occurred. God, God shows up. He, he reveals himself, and then he speaks, and then there's a cynical response in laughter. You're going to see that here. And then God corrects, but he also affirms. But this time, rather than culminating in a, in a command to be circumcised, there, there's another challenge that, although slightly different, captures the entire essence of what's before us today. And so, with the time we have remaining, I want to look here at chapter 18, verses 1 through 3. It says, And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. And he said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Now we're going to talk about Abraham's response to these men here in just a minute. But I want you to notice what's happening first in verse 1. It says, The Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre. And if you were here several weeks ago, you know this was one of the first places where Abraham entered into the promised land, and he found this place that would have been a pagan shrine, and he said, no, 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 we're repurposing this, we're claiming this for the glory of God. And so he set up an altar there, and, and he's been worshiping the Lord, albeit for a, a brief stint in Egypt, ever since. And here, after this long time, 24 years, God finally shows up at this place, under the oaks of Mamre, and he reveals himself. He visits Abraham in this place. And the text refers to these men as Lord. Likely there are two angels and then the Lord himself. And the Lord isn't messing around. He, he's going to make it abundantly clear to Abraham what his intentions are. And to Abraham's credit, he recognizes who this is. In verse 2, his first response, his first reaction is to run towards these men. And then when he realizes, hey, the Lord is here, he does the same thing he's always done. He hits the floor. He bows. It's never a bad idea, friends, when God shows up. And then he gets busy. He implores the Lord to stay with him. And he does what any Middle Eastern patriarch would do. He extends hospitality. He says, hey, let me provide some things for you to make your, yourself comfortable. And so let's look at verse 4 here and read about it. It says, let a little water be brought. This is Abraham talking. And wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. And then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared, and he set it before them. 
and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Church, this is a big deal. God shows up and Abraham goes over the top. He responds. His, his, quick, his quick response demonstrates his recognition. That there'd be no mere morsel of bread for these guys showing up at my tent. And, and so he runs into Sarah and he says, hey, three seas of flour, big stuff here. Let's, let's go over the top for these guys. Let's make sure that they have plenty to eat and they know they can eat their fill and we'll have more if they want it. And then he says to this young man, hey, take this calf, this choice calf, and I want you to slaughter it, and I want you to prepare it. We're having a feast here for these guys. Why? Why does Abraham pull out all the stops? Because <laughs> God was in his midst. You know, it's worth asking, <laughs> what does that say about our worship? When God is here, how might that inform how we respond when God shows up? Now here as God eats with Abraham, we have the first time where, where God uses a meal to ratify a covenant. See, meals are a big deal in the biblical narrative. And through the covenant of circumcision, God says, God comes to Abraham and he ratifies this covenant. He, he, he shares a meal with him. 400 years later, as we've already discussed, God would call his people to eat another covenantal meal, this, this Passover meal as they prepare to exit Egypt and go into the wilderness in order to receive the law and ultimately to end up in the promised land. And eventually, Jesus would share a covenantal meal with his disciples at the Last Supper before he goes to the cross and is, is resurrected. And he'll institute that covenantal meal to be not only for that night, but also for the church as it continues to gather together. Friends, we participated in a covenantal meal tonight that began in precedent at the time of Abraham. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Praise God. Now, one would think that the, the cynicism would be over by this point. They've heard from God often enough. And God has demonstrated his plan often enough that for Abraham and Sarah, they would take God at his word. And yet, look at this, verse 19. I, this, is, this is messy faith, all right? It says, they said to him, these are the three men, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Again, friends, we have laughter. We have this, this cynical response. Sarah, who's in the back, because women weren't often invited to the table of dignitaries, she listens in and, and she hears a birth announcement that confounds her, that messes with her. For her whole life, friends, she's hoped beyond hope, beyond hope to have a child. She's longed for the honor and the glory of holding her very own child in her arms. And at every iteration of God's covenant promise to Abraham, her eyes widen, maybe it's me. And yet at every juncture along the way, she, she falls to disappointment because it hasn't been her yet. 
And now, just as, just as the stone of the tomb of Lazarus was, was, the tomb of Lazarus was covered by a stone, so the stone of menopause covers her womb and her hope was lost years ago. There's no coming out. There's no child here. And so in a fit of ironic cynicism, the only response she can muster for what she's just heard is laughter. Ha! Have you seen me? Have you looked at me? God, you could have done this years ago, but now I'm this old lady and I have no hope, no chance. Why did you not do what you said you would do earlier? I laugh in your face. I don't believe it. can't be. Now, confounding birth announcements aren't limited to the Old Testament. I'm reminded of another birth announcement where a representative of the Lord comes to a woman named Mary. And friends, it's confounding, maybe more so. And he says to Mary, look, I know you're a virgin, but you're going to have a child. And the Holy Spirit will come on you. And you will bear the Messiah. And yet Mary doesn't laugh. (laughs) Sarah does. She can't believe it. And again, her doubt rises to full display. Talk about messy faith. But then watch, watch what the Lord does here. Chapter 18, verse 13. It says, The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. Friends, we we end right where we began. The Lord shows up in chapter 17, right at the beginning, and he says, I'm God Almighty, I'm El Shaddai, I'm the one who gets stuff done. I know it's been a long time, I know it's been 24 years since the initial promise, I know it's been 13 years since you did what you did with Hagar, but I reiterated my promise that a son of your very own seed would be the one who I would establish my covenant with. And now he reminds Abraham and Sarah with great assurance Do you remember who I am? I'm El Shaddai. Do you know who you're dealing with? And then he asks this glorious rhetorical question. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Challenge accepted. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Let's say it together. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And if the kids were here, I would have had them say it. Kids, some of you can say it. If you want to say it, you do it. And if there's silence, I'm okay with that. Let's go blank here. Ready? Is any? Good. I heard a couple kids there. That was good. And of course, the answer to that question is this. Adults, what is it? Ha! Wrong answer. You got to stay with me. Jesus is often the right answer. In that case, it wasn't. Let let me just spell this out for you. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Think about what you're going to say before you say it. All right? Now let's try it. I'm going to trust you on this. I'm not giving you the answer. I'm trusting you. Don't let me down here. Ready? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Thank you. 
all right. I can go home. I can, I can live. I, I can go to the Middle East and we'll be all right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Friends, no. There's nothing too hard for the Lord. The Lord can do anything. He is El Shaddai. He's the maker of heaven and earth. He's the one who who speaks and the universe is formed. He's the one who knits together uh, us as people in our mother's womb. Friends, you know what else isn't too hard for the Lord? Repairing your marriage, that's not too hard for the Lord. God can do that. Reaching your spouse who doesn't yet know Jesus, that's not too hard for the Lord. God can do that. Helping you figure out what to do with your life, that's not too hard for the Lord. God can do that. Preparing you for the work that he has for you, albeit in the workplace or in mission work or in ministry, whatever it is, God can do that. That's not too hard for the Lord. Equipping you to reach your coworker or your neighbor or your friend or your family member, friends, that is not too hard for the Lord. Helping you to walk with God and be blameless, friends, that is not too hard for the Lord. Putting a baby in a dead womb isn't too hard for the Lord either. And church, very soon, Sarah's cynical laughter is going to turn to joy. Can you imagine a 90-year-old woman giving birth to a child and holding that child in her arms? (laughs) And she calls him laughter, Isaac, Can you imagine the the depth of emotion that would rise from within? I've been there when my children were born. I was there, let me say that. (laughs) The depth of emotion is indescribable. Can you imagine for Sarah holding this child of promise and remembering her cynical laughter, but then saying, oh God, oh God, you're, you're enough. You're good. You've proven yourself. You are El Shaddai. It was impossible. And yet here he was. You can trust him. You can trust him. Friends, it's one thing to wait for God, like we discussed last week. It's another thing to trust God for the impossible. But over and over and over on the pages of Scripture, we read that the God of the impossible does impossible things. Go figure. He accepts the challenge. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is there anything else Shaddai cannot do? Please say it. No, there's not. But to participate in what he's doing, friends, he asks us to trust him in faith. That's the key. That's the condition. To trust him in faith. He's patient with us, but ultimately, cynicism doesn't make us participants in the kingdom, in the blessing. And I wonder, what are you cynical about today? What are you laughing at God about today? What are you struggling to trust God for? Is it your marriage? Is it your job? Is it your kids? If you're a kid, is it your friends at school? Is it your grades? Is it what you're going to do with your life? What is it? What are you cynical about, about with God? Friends, the blessing isn't only for the future. I'm convinced of that. The blessing is also for today. But it doesn't mean that God will do what we expect. Remember, God isn't obligated to us. We're obligated to him. God can work however he wants. But here's what I know about God, and here's what the scripture reveals about God. We sang about it earlier. He's perfect in all of his ways. 
We confess that with our mouths. I trust we believe it in our hearts. And if God is perfect in all his ways, you know what that means? That means he always does what's best. We can trust him. And if he always does what's best, we can trust him to do what's best, not only for himself, but also for us. He will do what's best. And in that, we will be blessed. But he asked, do you trust me? (laughs) Circumcision was the sign for Abraham. It's what God gave to Abraham and the people of the old covenant. And it's an opportunity for them to demonstrate trust in the most intimate of forms. How will we trust God? Friends, our sign is the blood of Jesus that covers us. Will we put our faith in it? See, you can be cynical. God will allow you to be that. But it's a guaranteed miss. Instead, may I suggest this, instead of being cynical, would you sell out just like Abraham? That very day, he did what the Lord commanded him. Friends, sell out and watch God work. He can save your marriage. He can protect you. He can heal you. He can come through on your job. He can lead you through the valley of the shadow of death, but you gotta trust him. You gotta sell out to him. And church, it may not be in the way that you expect, but I'm convinced God will bless you as you let him have all of you. And see, he might change how your spouse acts or thinks. He might do that. But he also might change you. And in that, you'll be blessed. He he might change your situation with your health. He might heal your disease. He might do that. But he also might give you an inordinate amount of peace in the midst of it. And in that, you'll be blessed. He might give you your dream job, your dream living situation, your dream family. Or he might make you content with what he's already given you. And in that, you'll be blessed. The question for us today is this. Are we cynical or are we sold out? Friends, let's sell out to God and watch him work. He will come through. He's El Shaddai, God Almighty. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these amazing stories in Scripture, these amazing reminders of how prone we are to laugh in your face, to remain cynical as we wait on you for the fulfillment of your promise. And yet, God, how patient you are, how kind you are. And how even after a hundred years, a person can be reformed and renamed and revisioned and repurposed for the glory and name of Jesus Christ and for our benefit and our blessing. Lord, give us faith to trust you with whatever it is. Thank you for for the the imagery even, just the the intensity of circumcision, God, the, the powerful demonstration of faith that it took to do what you asked. Lord, may we be willing to allow you to circumcise our hearts such that there is nothing between us and you. Have your way. And Lord, in that, bless us in the way that you know best. You're perfect in all your ways. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.